a guy that, I, that I've not seen for 10 years I went to uni with him got in touch with me to say oh, I heard you on this podcast I listened in <laughs> it's like you all sound like you know what you're talking about um like I I could I could do with a dictionary to listen in he said <laughs> the bit that I most most connected to was uh, your joke Derek around how you feeling with Simon feeling <laughs> what was that like that's a new segment for series two. How are you feeling with Simon Feeling? Yeah, can we do that? Like <clears throat> part A, part B, and then feeling with feeling. Part P. So I guess then we we should do the the welcome to the last two beer minimum of the first series in this broad experiment that is our dipping our toes into the podcasting world in so what what beers did you bring uh, laurie you're on the top of the screen what beers did you bring tonight i have brought uh loch lomond breweries yeasty boys and yeah loch lomond is just a stone's throw away from my house and i've also brought um overton breweries which is a glasgow based brewery it's bounty happen which is kind of a nod to the hope that surely one day we're going to get sponsorship for our two-beer minimum or it's bound to happen that one day we could be released from lockdown as well and we can actually do a podcast in person uh, having a bit more than just two beers and being absolutely tanked and talking shite about coaching <laughs> or everything else that's going on in the world to be fair yeah Stoddard, i see the uh Stoddard tartan has made a return yeah well we're going full soccer Full circle. I can't even speak and I haven't even had anything to drink. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a long day. Um, yeah, going full circle. I thought it was tradition to bring the stutter tartan out. Um, and Does that mean the, you've got to spill on the tartan tonight as well? Oh, please. No, that's a waste of valuable beer. But I do have a mixed shoof. <laughs> so La Chouf is a Belgian beer. And I just spotted this little kind of Scottish sort of spin on it, which seeing as our podcast sort of got a Scottish spin on it as well, um, I thought it was appropriate. Um, but I love Belgian beers, they're my favourite type, so I'm pretty excited to try this one. Um, it's a, a strong 8%, <laughs> so starting off, <laughs> well, that's what all Belgian beers are like, really. Um, and this one is Siren um, Caribbean Chocolate Pancake Stack beer, <laughs> just because wild, you know. Wow. That's funny. My my Overton one has got chocolate and coconut, which I'm not that excited about. Um, but I just really like the name of it. Is what it about a you, um, oh, I've Paid absolutely zero attention. No, I don't like it. I don't think so. Don't look at me like that, Derek. <laughs> people people seem to be going a bit far out. Like they're taking craft beers to the extreme. With well, I mean, I've seen some marshmallow flavored beers. I'm like, what? The? Mm. What? Yeah. Just, yeah. Just be a purist, please. You were right, Anna. It is smooth as chocolate melting slowly on your tongue. Silky, sexy stout with chocolate and coconut. That's a lot of alliteration there. Um, yeah. So are you asking what beers I've got? So I went uh, the first ever beer that we did in, on the first ever podcast experiment we did, which was that months ago on a Sunday night, I believe it was, and uh, a Shahalian. Um, from Harveston Bory was the was the first one that um, I drank. 
Uh, and my favourite uh, over the course of the two beer minimum, which was the disco forklift truck from uh, Drygate Brewery uh, or Brewing uh, in Glasgow. Um, so I'm going to enjoy those. And uh, unlike Anna, this isn't my first drink of the night. I've smashed a double gin and tonic just to calm the nerves before we did the last one. So uh, I may be slurring the words by the time we get uh, to the end of the podcast. But um, that's better than hearing me spraffing. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, before we get into talking about the pod, Laurie, I've just uh, talked about my first and favourite. What were your favourite, least favourite beers of the pod? My least favourite was Cairngorm Brewery's Santa Sledgehammer. I'm afraid. Yeah, did not enjoy that. And, and my favourite was, uh, I think the first episodes as well, which was from the Loch Fine Brewery. And they were probably my favourite because they were gifted from, from a pal. Um, well, I'm hoping this, this pancake stack, the one that I'm going to drink um, after La Chouf, will be my favourite. Um, I mean, the La Chouf one's so strong that maybe anything that I drink will go down pretty well at that point. But um, I obviously haven't tasted the ones that you two have brought to the different episodes, but I thought some of the ones that Laurie got from, was it Collinsay Brewery? One of the one of the islands. I thought that was really yeah. cool. I would like to try those. So that's a favourite that I've not actually tasted. And the least favourite is definitely the chili beer that my sister gave me last uh, last birthday. The other, so that was the mild chili beer that I chose, or maybe it was a medium one. But there's still a hot one sitting at home. Like, yeah, it's. <laughs> I don't know when that's going to get opened because it wasn't wasn't a pleasant experience. Yeah, I was, I was literally going to ask you how the chili beer stacked up against uh, other beers. Uh, and uh, I seem to remember the grimace on your face when you tried it uh, all those episodes back. So, yeah, glad to see that featured as your worst. But my, my worst uh, wasn't based on taste, but just volume. It's just a disappointing 3% from uh, uh, Genius Beer or Genius Lager. So um, I'll not be venturing there too often unless I'm absolutely hanging on a thirst. Um, but uh, but as I said, my favourite has to be uh, Disco Forked Truck. Just love in mango in in craft beer. I think it's just the perfect uh, uh, combination um, for me. You quite like yeah. You you seem to be quite into the citrus beers. I like a fruity beer, yeah. And and I suppose just going fruity. going back to well, two things. One, I opened the Shahalian with the Christmas present, uh, part of the Christmas present, yeah. UL Dog, which is a very nice bottle opener that says ball bag and for all of those that aren't used to Scottish parlance that that in essence means ball bag and take from that what you will um but I also uh, enjoyed the Cambridge beer that you gave me for Christmas Anna that was that was lovely um empty a wee bit but lovely enjoyed yeah, they that were, they were very good cool can as well um, I'm glad they made it all the way up and there. the bottles no for sure um, and the bottle of downpour Laurie lovely so thank you very much that was a very thoughtful bottle of gin which is very good at getting me inebriated um, way beyond what um what, what beer can do so let's uh, uh let's uh, let's see uh, or look forward to continuing to enjoy that until it's all gone well you're so very we're welcome that. and i suppose maybe i was going to say this at the end but i guess uh, there are very 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 few people that I would have uh, agreed to do this with <laughs> as you know I was pretty nervous going into this podcast but you've been great support and continue to be a catalyst for my development so um yeah definitely thanking you for that are we going to let it slide that you just criticized any craft beer for 
not for not being purist enough, but you also like a mango craft beer is your favourite one. There's no room for marshmallow flavour craft beers, but adding citrus and fruit is a well-known tradition in the craft of beer making. Have you tried the marshmallow one? Because I think I've had that one, the Tiny Rebel. Quite nice, actually. No. I, I remember growing up in, in, in Cork and we've got two major stout companies in Cork, which is Beamish and Murphy's. And Murphy's brought out a chocolate stout at one point. And it, uh, it was probably the most heinous thing I've ever tasted in my life. And ever since then, anything that strays beyond what, it, what is uh, a purist's perspective on alcohol then I'm absolutely abject uh, and I can't, I can't get behind it, I'm afraid. So your biography what? is filtering out the idea of a craft beer that's uh, not within your kind of... Yeah, you selfishly getting your work into the podcast again, Anna. <laughs> Have we not talked yeah. about your work often enough? What are your views, views then, Anna, on Buckfast? How does your personal biography filter that? <laughs> um, to be honest, yeah, I haven't had... Buckfast for yeah a, a number of years, so I don't have a, a strong opinion on it really. Um, yeah. Do you <laughs> want to explain Buckfast for people who've never drank it before? <laughs> Go on, Laurie. I'm not sure I would know uh, where to begin. It's just a very <laughs> Scottish beverage that's associated with. Uh... No, I'm not even going to stereotype it. If you've not tried it, try it. Isn't it also made by monks? Or in abbeys. Is that right? Wow. Mm, hmm. Better fact check that. But yeah, I prefer yeah. the Belgian kind of abbey beer to, to Buckfast, if that is the case. Mm. Right. So we're into the crux of it. So where, where do we start? Do we Let's start with, with last week and with Michael, or uh, Michael's his Sunday name, with uh, Mike and, uh, and Kerry-Anne. What are, uh, what are people's thoughts on, on last week, which um, I think is up there one of the episodes that I'm perhaps most proud of putting on tape. I think it was an absolutely quality episode um, and what they offered us. Um, one in terms of humility, like for Carrie Ann to turn around and just say, I don't know, straight from, straight from the off. Um, I think it was refreshing for a lot of people not feeling like they have to offer, offer up an explanation for everything, but recognising that there are things that we simply just do not know. I found that a really good, um, a really good in uh, to the episode. And then what what Carrie Ann offered up afterwards in terms of a real robust and rigorous understanding of perhaps the cognitive processes that sit behind decision making as far as we know it so far. Um, um, one just blew my mind. It goes back to what they were talking about. Well, you say brain in a lecture, and suddenly people just start nodding and smiling, right? which is essentially what I did. Um, but I think on balance, um, the way Carrie-Anne and, uh, and Mike interacted with each other over the course of the podcast just really enabled them to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, and I don't think I've ever been as quiet uh, in a recording because I was just able to sit back for a change and just really enjoy you know, what they put out there for, for people to listen to and engage with. Um, how, did, how did you guys feel about it? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think at a time when society is divided along so many fault lines, the way in which they approached the episode just felt like like a great big hug at points. Um, you know, they so frequently spoke of what we don't know. They spoke of the importance of interrogating our heuristics. Um, 
and you know the need to look at the fallibility of the way in which we make sense of decision making uh, and I think that leans towards the way in which Mike approached the way he wrote his paper and no doubt Kerry's enormous enormously broad experience across so many industries uh, yeah and I, I just really appreciated it yeah, I agree. I like that they both sort of acknowledged the varying perspectives rather than just saying like, I'm right, this is, this is the way. Um, both of them were able to, yeah, just say, this is what we do know and this is what we, we're not so sure about. And like, even though Carrie sort of started off with that kind of very brain-based explanation of um, where decisions come from, she was able to drop on lots of other kind of ways of understanding it too and uh, talked about uh, soul. I thought that was quite cool. Um, and um, yeah, and Mike was able to kind of lay off that really well as well. So I agree. And I'm not so sure we, we honed in on that, that notion of soul too often. I know we talked about, you know, the mediating factor that values in uh, assumptions in our paradigms or the ways in which we view the world in influence in decision making. And I know a colleague of ours, Laurie Leslie, probably would have come in with spiritually like what what influences our our decision making I suppose that's probably a regret on my front is perhaps not to try and drill down on on that notion of of soul and how soul um, impacts influences in decision making not just in uh, you know decisions that are situated within a task as as perhaps Mike described it but more broader decisions that we've got to make uh, about uh, and and in life so um, perhaps a just really good opportunity to bring Carrie Ann back in at some point just even with Leslie maybe uh, to talk about that that spiritual aspect of decision making. I mean you've already criticized me for bringing my research into these things but <laughs> the um the kind of thing about soul and like where who we are like where we're from um, that we were talking about and just values and beliefs and stuff shaping your decisions that remind me of biography which is um, yeah what I've kind of written a little bit about in terms of our learning and how that can filter out um, how we learn so it naturally made me think of that but uh, obviously I would because that's my biography too <laughs> yeah I, I do notice across probably a lot of episodes uh, I think a running theme, you know, is a real appreciation for individual differences. And, you know, to what extent do any of us have control over the way we think, feel, behave? Um, and, and I think that, really, again, that really came across. And it reminded me, actually, of this sailor that I once worked with. You know, and they both spoke about the attention they give when reviewing decision-making with people. And Mike offered a nice balance, so he said, I think, from what I understand, you know, there is a fine balance. We can't interrogate and unpack every decision. That would be exhausting and potentially unhelpful to athletes. But there is that real need to, to look at it from an, from an individual basis. And so anyway, sorry, I was work, used to work with a sailor and alongside another coach. And uh, it transpired over time that he was completely deaf in one ear and it was the training environment that that led us to understand that and as well as input from his parents and his school and I, you know I would notice the way that he spoke about decisions that he would make and some of that sensory experience that 
that he had. And I remember attaching a video camera to him and just looking, trying to understand what he was attuned to. And then it eventually transpired that he was completely deaf in, in one ear. And that was so important for us to be able to support the development and, and, and review of his decision-making process. So, yeah, a ramble. I don't think so. I'm, I, I made a massive scribble on my note there around um, as coaches and even coach developers, to, to what extent do we develop the skill of being able to unpack decisions and how, like, yes, you might, you might situate that in, in the questions that we ask, but how skillful are we asking, how skillful are we in asking the right questions to get to the heart of the decisions that have just been made? Or are the questions that we ask or the volume of questions we ask or the culture of questioning within something that we do or the environment that we find ourselves in leads athletes or coaches to perhaps respond in a way where they're just offering up something that we want to hear rather than looking at that deep reflection on action, in action, for action, for action that, that may be drawn from Richards and Collins' work in, in way back when. So keen to just understand Laurie, from your experience and, and even Anna and your experience around the, the skill of unpacking decisions or decision making, what, what are your thoughts on that relative to what Mike and, and Carrie Ann brought to the table last week? I think that was, was for Laurie. <laughs> um, but the idea of unpacking a decision did remind me of um, like the rugby level three, which I did a couple of years ago, where they were very much into the kind of game zone like games based coaching game zone and skill zone and then kind of stopping stuff and asking players to kind of unpack what they were thinking um when they went through yeah when they went through certain things in the game um, but yeah being able to ask that question or those questions well is a skill as well isn't it like stopping a game in front of everyone and going what were you thinking <laughs> is, uh, implies that um Perhaps there was something something wrong there. So, yeah, I imagine, and I, well, I think I know that we will probably come across questioning maybe in uh, series two uh, because we could do a whole whole thing just about that. Um, it's another skill in itself. But yeah, maybe that's taken it off off an tangent a little bit. Laurie, save me. <laughs> Definitely can't do that. But. Uh... Yeah, it's uh, what a great question, Derek, and particularly for my sport, super interesting because often, and, and in fact, loads of coaches that I respect and admire have talked openly about this. And uh, Bob Muir ran a, a beautiful workshop that I was a part of where we looked at from the perspectives of coaches, you know, what available, what information does a coach have available to them to support the way in which they review the decision making moment within a within a race and you know in sailing particularly now with a lot of the constraints around it sometimes coaches are so far removed from the race course like they're completely downwind and they're miles away from the athletes they might be using a tracking system so they've got an ipad in front of them which of course has limited information and um, whereas in you know in in maybe more junior and youth racing you can get a little bit closer to the action but nevertheless your perspective is is so far removed from what the sailors actually experiencing at the time and i think that's just really really crucial that, that we always remind ourselves of 
So going back to what Mike shared, you know, what assumptions are we making? It's just so, so important. Yeah, and what I'm trying to do here is is avoid an element of confirmation bias, but but going back to a common thread that I found across in all four episodes was this ontological perspective that reality is multiple, right? And, and we construct realities in, in and for ourselves. Uh, and taken back to your example of the sailor, and, and I bring it into a rugby context, well, nine times out of ten when I'm coaching in-game, um, my, my view of the pitch, my view of the game is completely different to the athletes because I'm either side on or behind the dead ball line or I'm in a stand or whatever. Um, and me being critical of a decision that an athlete makes um, is unfair in the sense that I'm not seeing what they're seeing. I'm not feeling uh, what they're feeling. Um, to bring it back to Jamie Taylor's webinar um, today and on Wednesday, um, I'm not in the same affective state. And therefore, to make a judgment on, on someone's decision-making is uh, at best unhelpful, um, at worst unfair. Um, and I suppose it goes back to that notion of, well, how do we unpack um, those decisions to challenge our assumptions as to why they were made in the first place, not necessarily to challenge the making of the decision, but perhaps to better understand their processes or their perspective on why they made that why they made that decision, which allows us, I suppose, in turn to perhaps fill some gaps where there's differing perspectives, but also offer um, uh, an opportunity for them to consider how they may, might make that decision differently in future in light of information that you have that might allow them to either privilege or discriminate against certain information if that opportunity arises again. Um, but, but that skill, I think, I may be, you, it comes back to being able to talk a good game, so it's really good to be able to talk about those kind of things and unpack them in the cold light of day in a podcast like this. But in the heat of the moment, as a coach, your affective state is... is, is um, is impacted upon as well based on how the athlete or the team are doing uh, as well as how you arrived that day, whether or not the kids were stressing you out that morning, whether or not there was a traffic jam that caused you to be late turning up to a game. So I suppose it, it comes back to this idea of like emotion and decision-making, not necessarily like the heat of the moment in the battle of the game, but also the emotional state that you're in as a coach and the reality that you construct at that time and it brings us then to hot, hot debriefs and cold debriefs, um, uh, which, which is why decision-making is absolutely fascinating for me um, and, and something that I definitely want to continue to uh, understand further. Yeah, absolutely. That role of emotion is, is so interesting and that will massively impact up, upon the, what um, tactical solutions are available to us at that given moment as well and I wanted to ask you both from a rug rugby perspective about this um, you know idea of time and its influence on decision making and I loved how Kerri-Anne like really pushed us towards uh, looking at expert decision make makers in so many different domains and she clearly explores that a lot in her work and I just loved that and then uh, Mike brought in this idea of time and and like within sailing, there's, you know, a lot of conscious, deliberate decision making 
as well as intuitive emergent. But again, as we discussed on the podcast, that will vary dependent upon sport to sport. And I wondered, you know, from your perspective, when I look at rugby and I'm absolutely not in nowhere near um, yeah, a total moron, actually, I think it just looks really fast. Like it's so fast moving. Yeah. How, how does that impact the way that coaches um, support decision, the decision making process? I'm being pointed at. <laughs> uh, it is fast, but then there's some bits that are not so fast. So like quite a lot of the time when we were talking about um, decisions, I think of the line out because I've been, I'm involved in that a lot or was involved in that a lot. It's been more than a year since I've played rugby, so <laughs> that, that's a yeah, bit of a lapse of tense there. Um, yeah, but the line out's a situation where you have a bit of time to sort of, you know that it's going to happen because the ball goes out of play um, and then you have to get to the place where, where that happens and um, you understand what the, the setting is, like scenario, like the score, where on the pitch it is, um, whose who's throw it is, um, and kind of background of yourself as the, as the team in the, or the players that are going to be in the line out and the opposition. And then you look at things like the setup of people and um, where the space is and you make decisions based on that. Um, so yeah, there are some fast decisions, but there are some slow as well. And that's probably the case for a lot of different sports. Um, but yeah, it's still frustrating as someone that coaches the line out when there's like something that seems really obvious that someone should be doing and they just do the complete opposite and you're like, why have you chosen to do that? <laughs> but I think um, linked back to what Derek was saying, like even if you were in that same position as that player, you're a different person. So you don't really know like how is that person receiving that situation. Um, we don't, we can't know about what other people's thoughts look like to them. Um, or how they occur to them. So, yes, yeah, quite quite an interesting area. And um, I did like what Mike was talking about um, with the shared mental model, like that kind of idea, and kind of almost debunking the idea that we can have that. Um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and, and just building on that from from Anna, and I'm I'm going to talk across. A couple of theoretical perspectives, uh, if I can. And what you're talking about there is, if you're stood next to the person who's making that decision, you would make a different one. Well, on one side, you might say, "Well, uh, I've got different action capabilities, and therefore, uh, I've got different um, affordances, or I would exploit the same affordances differently because of I've got different action capabilities from a, a technical, tactical, physical, mental, psychological perspective." Where, whereas on the other on the other side, if we view reality as multiple and we have a mental model or a shared mental model of what we do, well, my interpretation of that is naturally going to be different based on how I view the world and how I've interpreted your coaching. Um, and to go back to perhaps what Laurie was saying around, well, are there fast and slow decisions? Yes, like in, in the contact area, decisions are, 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 are pretty fast in, at, at the locus of where the ball is. But if you're, if you're, say, in centre field or, or on an edge of a pitch, the decisions that you make will be a lot slower because based on experience and over time, you might have an understanding of how um, play might unfold as a consequence of how the defence are set up and how you're set up in attack. And that might enable you to think, 
two phases ahead, three phases ahead, relative to field position, but also relative to weather conditions, uh, relative to fatigue. You kind of know when a team's going to kick, when they're not going to kick, when the ball's going to come to you, when the ball's not going to come to you. Uh, and when you're not when you're not in the locus of the ball, it allows you to make a lot more deliberate decisions and where you might position position yourself to be more effective within the game on either side of the ball. And I'm yeah, I'm not going to compare that to other sports because I'm not an expert in it. But in a sport like rugby, where it's so dynamic in the sense that everybody attacks, everybody defends. It's a high contact sport, collision sport, where emotions and ego are at play quite a lot. Um, then it just becomes altogether dynamic and complex around that decision making process. What role does ego play in decision making? Well, I think um, from again, I'm not going to claim to be an expert in this, but going back to what what Mike was saying around neuroticism to a degree. Um, there, there's sometimes um, ego at play in, in rugby where you just believe that you are greater than, bigger than, stronger than your opposite number, and you might make a decision contra- contrary to what's within the shared mental model just because you're in a pissing contest with somebody, and you want to make sure that you're getting um, you're getting the edge over your opposite number, or somebody's really pissed you off in the game, and you just I mean, Anna, you've, you've perhaps been here. You just, you just want to carry the ball as hard as you can into somebody just because they pissed you off. Or you want to absolutely blindside and smash someone just because they pissed you off. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, necessarily yes. They pissed you off. But it might, yeah. could be the other way around as well. Um, 100%. I think probably, yeah, quite often the other way, actually. You realise that you're not as big and as strong and as uh, brutal as um, your opposite number. So, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, I'll bring us back to France. Was it 2012 when we played in Dijon? Were you there? I, I'll never forget the moment where we, uh, I was coaching Scotland at the time and it was our last game of the Six Nations. Uh, we, we went out two days ahead of what we would normally do to France and probably had some of our best preparation in terms of tech tech stuff. Uh, the warm-up felt incredible um, and we, we sent the team in and we, we felt, you know, we've, we've got a really good feeling about, about what's going on today. And, like, I don't, know, I don't know what your experience of, of Stadia in France is, but uh, I remember Scotland going out first and lining up in what can only be described as a cage uh, and lining up single file on the right hand. I'll never forget this as long as I live. Lining up on the right-hand side, um, waiting for France to come out before the gates opened and both teams went out. And of course, France rocked up, and I, I would say at least 15 kilos per player heavier, uh, at least a foot per player taller. Uh, and um, within, I think, 20 seconds of the game, France has scored the first try, and we're like, "Oh, it's going to be a long day." Um, so yes, there is there is the opposite end of the spectrum from an ego perspective and, and for the record we finished that game um, 83 nil we lost in Dijon yeah it was a biggie that's a big gals <laughs> they're big gals can, um, we, um, can we talk about the um, the foresight stuff that we were talking about in the um, yes and um, 
like how inspirational some of that was in that I think it might have been Carrie talked about what is my role in making the world a better place and I thought that was really cool and I realized just before this I actually wore a t-shirt that says inspired on it <laughs> um, from I don't know if you can do you remember uh, Lauren Harris Haggis I do remember Haggis, yeah. She set up a clothing company and this is uh, her badge of shame t-shirt, so shout out to Haggis. Shout out to Haggis. And where can she buy the t-shirts? Where can anybody buy the t-shirts? Uh, badge of shame clothing company, I guess. Look them up. There you go. Shameless plug for Haggis. But yeah, it was inspirational, <laughs> so the, the podcast episode, I thought. Yeah, I, I'm going to need a minute because I'm... Uh... Sorry, you're going to need some editing in your deck. <laughs> I'm trying to find a book. Uh, I, I'm doing this. Meanwhile, I'm on the pancake beer, and whew, that is something. Is it? It's good. Smoking that pancake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on that stout, and I never really... Look how dark that is. Ugh. Not my I cup of tea. I feel like I'm really slow tonight. I'm really off. slow. I'm still like, right, shall I see it off? <laughs> yeah. Left handed, of course. Can you hear that in the recording? Yes. I should just, I should... <laughs> That's not nice. <laughs> oh. good, good content, almost as good as the mint spies. Derek's struggling, <laughs> but all I can see is his massive forehead. <laughs> oh, brutal. Oh, the five head? I couldn't swallow. <laughs> no, you do. I, I, I've been having forehead jokes all my life. My whole, fam my whole dad's side of the family are called the foreheads. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so no, that idea of foresight, definitely, Anna. I loved that stuff. Loved it. Um, and, and in fact, I'm trying to collaborate with someone or trying to learn from someone working in a completely different uh, context from sport and looking at the similarities and differences and what can we learn and she recommended this book called the lean startup it's around how constant innovation creates radically successful businesses um, anyway yeah it's just in and around that idea of yeah, looking ahead, what's not being done yet? And when Mike talked about, what was that sweeping, cutting statement that I loved? Everybody's playing rugby in a similar way at the moment. Uh, yeah, I thought that was uh, super interesting. The foresight thing is interesting for me as well. Um, and I was, I was really keen to unpack the, the intuition piece with, I've said piece there. Bingo. <sighs> Um, but <clears throat> the intuition piece of me, so if we go back to um, some of the decision-making processes that, um, say, for example, Mike talked about in his paper, where he looked at that synthesis of perhaps classical decision-making, recognition, prime decision-making, and natural, naturalistic decision-making, i.e. your ability to make decisions based on, on gut feel or, or intuition or tacit um, tacit knowledge well that, that comes from somewhere right decisions don't come from nowhere intuition doesn't come from nowhere it comes from experience expertise knowledge um, so when when I I think I read something or heard something this week that you can't coach or teach intuition well 
unfortunately you can like it is it is the totality of all of our experience uh, all of our knowledge channeled uh, into foresight uh, i believe to find creative solutions to novel problems um, and I, I suppose again that's a, that's my personal theory linking to perhaps what some of your work uh, anna but but my personal belief is that um, intuition can be trained but not in the way in which we might assume it would be no well done derek that was that was a that was really lovely um, i'm just going to briefly escape for a moment that beer is so disgusting <laughs> i can't drink it i'm just going to grab a different one we've got a new candidate for worst beer series <laughs> but i agree with you i think implicit implicit uh, knowledge is yeah it is a thing that you learn it's not just magic um, yeah, there's the good, the kind of classic from Nash and Collins, I think it's 2006, so a bit of a heyday for uh, coaching that, that year, um, <laughs> or coaching academia that year. And the, the thing about sort of implicit knowledge and um, it, like the art of coaching is, co is coaching an art or a science, and they kind of argue that the, the art, the kind of intuition is actually tacit knowledge, so it's stuff like from experience that you build up and you learn. So. It's not just, uh, it's not magic. So, do we want to look back over the previous four episodes as well? Um, and think about um, consistencies, um, threads, um, favourites, golden nuggets, dare I say, Anna? Um, takeaways. Things that we'll carry with us. Um, I'm having chips tonight. Takeaways. Oh. <laughs> um, but, but also just... Um, how how the experience has shaped us personally in, in uh, what do we do next i mean we're we're already talking about a series two and we're starting to frame what certain episodes could look like there seems to be uh, and I, I i hate this idea i hate this notion because it um, seems to be a community of people engaging with the podcast and just now and we need to be respectful of that and, and responsive to some of the things that they might want and need um, um, from us as a uh, inverted commas platform. Um, so, so before we get to that, let's let's think about just unpacking the previous four episodes and just what what the experience been like. How have you, yeah, what what what's it done to you? What's the experience done to you? I am a much better person for Anna's wit, intellect, <laughs> and, and tartan. I love that. Next time I have to describe myself in three words, I'm going to say <laughs> wit, intellect, and tartan. I, I have to say I'm a, I'm a much worse person as a consequence of her wit, tartan, and intellect, uh, largely because... Um, Anna's very, very good at holding me to account, but very, very good at cutting the legs from under me, which I really enjoy, by the way. Um, and it's been noticed by, by more than one person on more than one occasion. So, so thank you for, um, for making me feel like a lesser human being. I was going to say, I wish I was as good at that when I was tackling people on a rugby pitch and cutting the legs from under people. <laughs> Sadly, not. Coming back to the thing that I just said uh, a little bit earlier, like what's my role in making the world a better place? So um, hopefully the cutting the legs from under you is a, a positive thing and not a complete just taking people down because that's, that's not constructive. <laughs> um, 
hopefully it's um, encourages people to think a little bit more about um, the stuff they take on board or not. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed that. And I just think that my favourite episode is probably the, well, I like the one that we've just done for that kind of inspirational kind of slant on it. It gave me a bit of a big up, but um, I also like the ontology and epistemology one, which, um, you know, on first glance, you would think that that's a bit of a weird topic for a, a podcast and perhaps um, it, people might have might not have thought that that would be as good as it was. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was great, and I think there's a lot of messages in there that have kind of gone through some of the other episodes that we've had. I like that one because I felt that I learned from it and um, gained stuff that I or gained a new perspective that I didn't know that I had. I hadn't really thought of applying ontology and epistemology to coaching necessarily before then. I'd always thought of it as more of a more abstract kind of research related thing. So um, I like that episode for that reason. Has it changed your view of coaching? Good question. Um, I can't really answer that because I haven't really done any coaching <laughs> uh, recently. Like we did a little bit um, in October before we had our lockdown times two or 2.0. Um, but yeah, I think um, coaching obviously is a very practical endeavor and um, these things make most sense in a practical practical way. And I haven't really been involved in coaching, sadly, just because of all the restrictions. So um, I wouldn't say it has changed the way that I think about coaching, but perhaps the way that I think about coaching research and maybe seen, seeing things in a different, different way in terms of research stuff, but like applied research and understanding my own work too. That's really cool, Anna. <clears throat> and I, I, I'd, I'd like to chuck this one over to you, Derek. I have some idea of the motivations that took you and subsequently us, me and Anna, into this little adventure together. And I wonder, in terms of those original motivations for doing this, have you got out of it what you were looking to? Because I've heard from a number of listeners a lot of respect for the approach that you take to this um, which I'm really grateful for because I really admire it uh, and yeah have you got what you were looking for? Um, I suppose the, the four topics for what was intended to be episode one to four but ended up being one two three and five um, yes um, it's fed some curiosity in certain areas the the intention was always to to sense make and and feed curiosity through through this platform and but do so in a way where we um draw upon differing perspectives around around a single subject and have we have we achieved that um personally i i think i think we have um it, it we naturally we haven't included all perspectives because uh, then it wouldn't necessarily be a podcast anymore. It would just be a party, and we would have to uh, work the room, as it were, to try and understand everybody's um, um, perspectives. And, and and I suppose just as an aside to that, um, it was it was really nice actually having two guests rather than three on the last episode, because going back to what I said about sitting back and it being able to observe, it just turned into a conversation between the two guests rather than us having to do the rounds and it's moving forward into into series two is that something that we continue to work with where we facilitate a discussion between two people 
to understand their differing perspectives or perhaps not necessarily differing but perspective but but different perspectives uh, on on a, on a certain area and one to know to one to think about um, but yeah, did I did I get what I want? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, and at the same time, to be able to share that journey with both of you has been incredible. But but equally, um, putting out the the journey into the ether uh, on a podcast um, without fear of judgment, um, I think is a massive step for any for for any human being to. I wouldn't say the confidence, but 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 perhaps being brave enough to do so, and and both of you signing up for and and, and jumping in on the experiment um, took bravery in, on your part as well, especially considering um, some of the politics associated with um, some of the work that we do, um, some of the implications around um, uh, around the work that we do, and to put yourself out there in a fairly authentic um, and vulnerable way uh, without necessarily professing to know everything, but actually wanting to understand more things. Um, uh, I hope um, uh, is taken in the spirit in which it's intended. Like we've never professed and we will continue, or certainly I will, I will continue to not profess to know everything. But, but curious about a lot of things and, and exploring that curiosity through the podcast is is going to be the core aim of what certainly and, and my core motivations for, for what we do. Yeah, I love that. And this, this bit can happily be cut, but I just can't not add this. I've had been really privileged to get a lot of feedback, people individually that have tuned in, for which I'm incredibly grateful for. And I notice that it has changed the dynamic with some of the coaches that I work with, you know, so um, just I think respect for asking the question and, and trying to be authentic. It's really, I find it really hard to be present in some of these recordings because you know it's going out there to people that you work with and that you work for as well. Um, you know, but often like you, you get a glimpse of what you don't know and it just opens up this sort of rabbit hole that I'm continuing to bury down and uh you know and, and one coach said to me recently like sometimes I feel overwhelmed at the end of the podcast and and uh, and I really shared that feeling with him of saying oh, I totally get it mate like I'm absolutely there as well uh, and and so in some ways with some people it kind of um yeah allowed for more of a connection I think which is something that I really want in general in the work that I do you know you're you're working alongside the person you're there to learn together and from one another yeah yeah I think just just before Anna comes in and, and this is why this is why I loved Carrie Ann's perspective um, on decision making and, and by and large over five episodes we discuss things I'm not going to say from an academic perspective but relatively academically Okay, we interrogated some things academically. Um, Carrie Ann brought a really human perspective to decision making. Uh, in the same way that I think, um, Anna, this is why your work is so impactful, I think, on me and people like Kenny Webb, who's consistently quoting you. I think he's the president of the fan club. Um, you, you bring a, a really human 
perspective to how coaches learn. When you talk about history and uh, yes, biography, but what you're very much talking to is that we, we look at the world through the experience or the totality of the experiences that we've had uh, on arrival to this point where we engage with or interact with, with learning or knowledge. Um, and I think the, the more that moving forward, my learning is the more that we humanize these concepts um, or the, the curiosity that we have around certain perspectives on sport coaching, the more accessible it becomes, um, not just for us, but for the people who are engaging in the podcast. Um, and certainly that's my learning from, from um, series one into, into series two is just how do we humanize some really complex concepts? And thinking back to episode one, that's what I really loved about Guido. Like, holy shit, like the stories that man told, but the way in which he talked about culture um, was a very, here's that word again, humble, um, but, but, but situated in reality. Um, and I think sometimes we, not, not us personally, but sometimes we, we take these complex concepts, constructs, theories, frameworks, and we don't situate them in reality. And if there's one thing that we need to perhaps aspire to into series two uh, is to consider that the center of how we plan uh, and interact with or converse over these, over these podcasts. I can't uh, lay claim to the, the idea of biography. Um, that's, that's Peter Jarvis. He's <laughs> um, some prof. <laughs> I think he's at Surrey or was at Surrey. Yeah. <laughs> I can't like, lay claim to that, but I think um, what you're saying sort of reminds me of the idea of praxis. So like not just theory and practice, but like they're kind of, they're integrated, they're, they're together. Um, so yeah, it'd be good if we can get that kind of thing across. With our chats with different people. So, um, do you want to think about now that we've reflected on this series? Do you want to think about where we believe we're headed? A guy that that I've not seen for ten years. I went to uni with him, got in touch with me to say, "I heard you on this podcast. I listened in." (laughs) It's like you all sound like you know what you're talking about. Um, Like I, I could, I could do with a dictionary to listen in. He said, (laughs) "The bit that I most." most connected to was uh, your joke, Derek, around how you feeling with Simon feeling. <laughs> what was that like? That's a new segment for series two, how you feeling with Simon feeling. Yeah, can we do that? Like <clears throat> part A, part B, and then feeling with feeling. <laughs> part P. Oh, it's going downhill, isn't it? <laughs> That's staying in. That's fucking staying in. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so where <laughs> stop laughing, Laurie. So where are we going? Like, what's next? Series two. That could be a thinking? fun way to get people's feedback. <laughs> we can go to the now. Yeah, now we're going to switch to how you feeling with, <laughs> with feeling. So, so we'll, we'll be, be back. back. We'll be back. What are we going to be back doing, Anna? Mm, podcasts. Cutting the legs from under me. <laughs> Drinking beer, yes. enjoying beer. Are we? Are we going to? Are we going to put a blanket ban on marshmallow or chocolate beers from now on? Spicy beers. What are you going to do to enforce it? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Sweet fa, to be honest. <laughs> but but I do like the idea of having like a two wine two wine minimum. 
or or expand into the world of, of gin or even whiskies or cocktails. Could be a different Ooh. beverage every time. <clears throat> that sounds dangerous. <laughs> I don't know if I'm up to I don't know if I'm conditioned enough <laughs> for that. <clears throat> but yeah, we have to keep going until we get the chance to do this face to face. Yes. At a bare minimum. Um, a bare minimum. Are, are there any <laughs> at the bare minimum? <laughs> uh, it's it, just thinking forward though. Is there anything in particular that you guys have got the motivation or the aspiration or the inclination to explore in in, in series two? Things that are unresolved or things that we didn't necessarily get the opportunity to because ultimately, let's call it like the framework for the first series was set out before you know, we actually uh, developed a. a what I'm, what I'm liking or developing a relationship between the two of us that are three of us that allows us to um, interact, converse, challenge each other on what we might want to do next. So what might we want to do next? Yeah, we talked a little bit about questioning, but I think that links to something that Laurie had in mind. So I'll pass the baton on to her. Yeah, what have we got coming? We've got branding to, div- yeah, to build upon the what Derek's already what Derek's already come up with. Uh, we've got an episode lined up in and around feedback from differing perspectives, contexts. We've got a joint cast with the 80% mental podcast. That's gonna be fun. We do, pure mental. What are we gonna talk about or... with them? My idea, given given the work that Pete's done uh, and something I'm extremely passionate about. Is self care and coaching. Oh, cool. um, yeah. Because mm. coaching is stressful. We need to acknowledge that. But we also need to acknowledge that we need to do more to support coaches to develop the resources to cope. Mm. So, yeah, I'd be really keen to explore that with, with Pete, given um, some fantastic work he's done in the field. Sounds good. Yeah, we had, we had um, potentially <clears throat> meaning in sport, didn't we? I'm desperate we keep talking in and around Anna's work but I would actually really like to uh, fully or try and expose it more I'd, I'd love you to lead a podcast on that oh you've just taken just stolen my idea Sorry. <laughs> you know, I'm just interested well yeah anything to do with learning I'm happy to talk about mm. <laughs> yeah I think there's something that we've actually talked very little about which is the athlete mm. um, and I'm keen to explore some stuff around athlete experience probably based by and large from a biased perspective on some of the work that I do in it in my day job um, and knowing that there are some excellent people doing excellent work in this space including Laurie um, and I'm keen to explore uh, athlete curriculum so people develop an understanding of that yeah, and its importance in athlete development. No, supervising uh, one of my colleagues doing our PhD on that. Dream guests anyone? Julian North. Oh, totally. I am right there with you. Yes. More yes. leads Beckett. <laughs> um, let me think about I'll, that. Actually, I've been think... speaking a little bit on ResearchGate to Pierre Trudel. He's a bit of a legend. He's a, so, such a nice guy as well. Do we need to pick up the clang there? What does that pick mean? up the name drop for you there. There you go. <laughs> Uh, I also think Bob Yor would be quite interesting on the podcast if we could ever get some. Uh, I know LBU again. 
Um, but Bob Muir would be <laughs> would be pretty cool to have on for his perspective on how you develop coaches. Um, because um, by and large, our audience has been certainly from the feedback I'm getting is is academics in the coaching field, coaches themselves, coach developers. Um, yes, there are coaches engaging with it, but it'd be really nice to explore the future of how coaches learn through coach developers and coach development. Um, and someone like Bob, who's at the razor's edge of that, would be pretty cool to to have him on to share his work, but also share what his perspectives of coach development are. Mm. And Andrew Gillett mm. would be would be mm. fantastic to have on the pod. Just a very interesting fellow. I would have to stay on mute the entire time because I he makes me laugh. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. What about I you, don't... Anna? Is there anybody that you'd love on? Besides Trudell? Uh, I don't know. More um different people. It's difficult for me to answer because like I can think about who I sort of know that I would like to hear from, but I'd like to hear from people that I don't know. Yeah, for <laughs> you know sure, I mean? right? For sure. Um, yeah, I have a family member coming on in series two and okay. someone from a non-sporting context. And also, I'm going to chuck in there that I'm desperate to get a woman. Um, oh, man, we've got so many colleagues and friends. This is hard. Maybe we need to cut this bit. I could list umpteen people that we work with and know that I'd love to get on. Um, but I guess someone that we don't, none of us know, or none, neither of you know, and probably none of my colleagues know, is um, a woman called Magdalena, who's a neuroscientist at Stirling University. She's done a, a ton of phenomenal, phenomenally interesting research within football that sits in and around ethics within sport. I would love to get her on. She's been hugely influential in my, in my life. She'd be a cool guest. And she's Dutch. She's fucking mental. She'd be good fun. What about Kevin Bridges when you're out on a walk around? Oh, I, yeah, he's, I know. I, I, I'm, I'm already trying to locate his house because I run a lot up in Arica. And based on a few interviews that he's done over lockdown and YouTube, I'm trying to like distinguish where his house might Weird. be still based upon the backdrop of the interview. And uh, I'm, I'm also private messaging him to try and get him to join the running club because uh, I know he does a bit of running and we're the local running group and I'm trying to you know provide a safe space like we're not mental and come and run with us. You wouldn't be available for series two and not arrested for stalking <laughs> Kevin Bridges. Can, can you can you engage in a podcast from prison? <laughs> Kevin Bridges will be tweeting about some random woman whose like nose is imprinted on his front window when he's watching TV. It's me, it's not eh? Do you want to come with a pod? It'd be good to have him on the podcast. Though. <laughs> you, you won't be laughing when he's sat next to me on this podcast. You won't be I laughing will. anymore. I'm probably will be laughing. He's quite you will, yeah, fucking hilarious. Mm. Give me two years. I will be. I'll befriend him. We're doing oh, this for two, two years. years <laughs> I was like, oh hell no, that's that's not. Him. <laughs> not in my long-term objectives i'm gonna get rid of you two <laughs> over the next six months yeah, and then i'll have yeah. my nose up against your window anna that sounds like a really good note to end that's a threat a series on <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, just just in um, 
in the interest of wrapping up, um, thank you so much uh, to you two for being fucking incredible sports and um, getting stuck in with uh, an experiment and indulgence um, that that uh, that I wanted to pursue, and um, I was really really keen. Um, to have you both on board and I have absolutely zero regrets uh, in doing so so thank you very much um, yeah, for coming on the journey with me with, uh, and uh, a journey that has become ours now, uh, and and not mine yeah, and I'm loving the fact um, that this is a, a real collaborative um, uh, process and a collaboration between the three of us that um, I hope can continue for some time to come or at least until um, Laurie's imprisoned for stalking Kevin Bridges. Beautifully put. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for um, letting me take the piss out of you every few weeks. <laughs> you done, Laurie? Have you pissed yourself yet? <laughs> That's questioning right there. She's just about to. <laughs> Is this unpacking decision making? <laughs> <laughs> That is one downside of lot of lockdown. You, I'm so used to with being able to use the mute button when I'm laughing, but you can't do that on the phone. So um, I've run into difficulties anyway. But oh god, just please cut the last hour, Derek. I need to leave. <laughs> Not at all. That's a consistent thread throughout throughout the two beer minimums. Probably. Yeah, I'm going to get you a T-shirt, Laurie, that says "Please cut this, Derek." <laughs> it's been a blast. Yeah, it has. Thank you both.